Take your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. We have been charged with the responsibility of living an authentic life. And that life is to be seen by those around us. Ephesians chapter 2 says, For by grace we've been saved through faith. Not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus under good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Jesus said in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. We have already studied in 1 John chapter 1 where John begins his epistle by saying, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Paul echoes that same truth. In Ephesians chapter 5, where he says, You once walked in darkness, but now are you light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Our walk talks and our talk talks. But our walk talks louder than our talk talks. And it is critical that you and I live an authentic life. One that honors and glorifies God. And one that shows his presence in our lives. God is good. And all the time. I don't see Nick Coster. Nick, are you? There he is. I'm sorry you're hidden back there. Thank you. Nick is going to come and he is going to read for us 1 John chapter 4. I apologize, Nick. It was your glowing halo in that light. I just couldn't see you. I have challenged you to read through 1 John. And if you will begin this afternoon or even tomorrow and read one chapter a day, you'll get through it very easily in a week. Take you less than five minutes a day. And as I've made that challenge, I wanted to make sure that even those who didn't pick up the challenge... We're aware of 1 John. So every week I've asked someone to come in and read the chapter that is before us. Nick is going to share with us 1 John chapter 4. Nick. Good morning, everyone. 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. 
Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for the love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved, but God, that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Thank you, Nick. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word as you and I take it and apply it to our hearts and live it out through our lives for his honor and his glory. How would you complete this sentence? God is. That's right, Terry. In our text, there are two instances where John identifies God's love. And it says, God is love. But God defines his character in so many other ways. In John chapter 4, we read, God is spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we read, God is faithful. Aren't you thankful for that? God is faithful who will not suffer us to be tempted above that we are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that we may be able to bear its load. We read in 1 John chapter 1, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. 2 Peter tells us that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And as we read scripture, we discover over a hundred identities of God as we recognize the wonder of our God. Now, John here emphasizes God is love. We discover that truth in verse 8 God is love. We also see it in verse 16 God 
is love. Now, this is not God just shows us some love. This is not God exhibits the qualities of love. The truth is God is pure love. And it is that truth that drives God as he invests in our lives. This morning I want to share with you five demonstrations of God's love and then we will see our response to his love. Because it's important that you and I identify God's work of love in our lives so that we can live it out from our lives. The first demonstration of God's love that we see in the text is that God sent his only son into the world. God sent his only son into the world. Verse 9, In this, the love of God was made manifest to us that God sent his only son. Now, the word only there is an interesting word. It has the idea of one of a kind, unique, monogenous. It means one that was not born by ordinary circumstances. One that did not come into being produced of a woman. Now, you and I know that The virgin conceived and bore a son, and they called his name Jesus. And so as we think of God's only son coming to the world, we must understand that he is unique in every way. He is indeed one of a kind. Now, that's hard for us to understand. It's hard for us to identify with with that kind of individual. But I want you to know that God sent his only son, and we discover some of the emotion of that on the cross, where Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so the uniqueness of the relationship of the father and the son ought to grip our hearts because God sent his only son. Now, perhaps we can understand it as we look at Abraham and Isaac. God told Abraham, Abraham, take your only son, Isaac. And you remember that was a special son, wasn't it? It was one who was born out of Abraham's old age. It was one who was born miraculously, if you will, because Abraham was 99 and Sarah was 90. And it was born because God promised Abraham an heir. One that he would bless, and from him, he would bless the nations. Can you imagine the special relationship that Abraham had with Isaac? One day, God said to Abraham, Abraham, take your only son, Isaac, and go into a mountain that I'm going to show you, and there offer him a sacrifice. I don't know about you, but I might have argued with God. I might have said, hey, God, are you sure you want to do this? Or, hey, God, let's, let's rethink this plan. But Abraham followed God, obeyed God. And the text says that it was counted unto him to righteousness. So what did Abraham do? He and Isaac picked up, took some servants with them, 
went to a, to a mountain where God showed him Mount Moriah. Some identify that as Calvary in the New Testament. Abraham left the servants, and he and Isaac started to climb the mountain, and Isaac had a question. Hey, Dad, I know we're going to offer a sacrifice, and I know we have the wood to do that. I know we have the fire to do that. But hey, Dad, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham responded, God will provide a sacrifice. And Abraham bound Isaac, his only son, placed him on the altar, and was going to offer him as a sacrifice. And the scripture says in Hebrews chapter 11 that Abraham believed that even though he offered Isaac a sacrifice, Isaac would return with him. In fact, he had told his servants that very thing. And you know the account. God provided a sacrifice. God demonstrated his love toward us in such a way that he sent his only son. And he sent his only son, according to the text, for two reasons. Verse 9, he sent his only son so that you and I might live through him. Before we received Christ as personal Savior, you know we are dead in our trespasses and sin. For the wages of sin is death. And you and I, because of the sin nature that we have, are destined for death. But God sent the Son so that you and I might live through him. Isn't that exciting? Jesus said, I am come that you might have life. And that you might have it more abundantly. Scripture tells us that in him was life, and the life was the light of of men. The Father sent the Son so that you and I might know what life is all about. Real life. And the way that you and I experience life, the reason we experience life, the provision that God made to give us life, is found in the next verse. Because the text says in verse 10, in this is I'm, yeah, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Word propitiation is a $64 term. It has the idea of one who takes our place because we are under penalty. It has the idea of satisfaction of a debt. The prophet Isaiah looked forward to God's plan. And in Isaiah chapter 53, we read, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him. That's propitiation. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquities of us all. You see... God sent his only son so that you and I might have life, so that we might live. And in order for that to take place, 
he became sin for us. Because he knew no sin, that we might have the righteousness of God in him. Jesus said, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God is love. And God demonstrated that love in such a way that he sent his only son so that you and I might have life, so that we might live, so that someone else who had the ability would pay our price because we were under condemnation and Christ became the propitiation for our sins. The second demonstration that we find in the text is that God sent his son in such a way that we might abide in him. Now, my plan this morning is not to exegete the passage. But if you will look at your scriptures, you will discover that John uses the word abide six times in our passage. Five times in the Greek, six times in in English. And we should recognize that because up until this point, John has used the word abide 14 different times. You'd think we'd get the message, wouldn't you? Now, the word abide means to take up residence, to be at home with. And God has taken up residence in our lives through his spirit because our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, whom we have of God. We've been bought with a price, therefore we are to glorify God in our body and our spirits, which are God's. There is nothing that takes place in your life or in my life but that God is right there with us. Someone said God is the silent guest at every meal. He is the unheard person of every conversation. And so we discover that he abides in us. Let me give you an assignment this afternoon. Go home and read John chapter 14, 15, and 16. And you will discover how Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit, the helper, the paracletus, the one called alongside us. So that we might not be left comfortless. Be it ever so humble, there's no place like home. And I don't know about you, but when I get home, it's the time for me to kick off my shoes and just relax. It's the time where I can be myself. I have a vocation where you don't get much time off. Every place you go, you're pastor. Everything you do, it's looked at from being pastor. And it's so nice just to be Tom. And when I come home, I'm honey. And I'm so thankful for that. And I can relax and I can be myself. And I can just enjoy home. 
God demonstrated his love toward us because he gave us his spirit to abide, to be at home, to reside in our lives. Now, that ought to be an encouragement to you. But it also ought to be a challenge to us. When I'm at home sitting and watching TV, guess who's watching with me? When I'm at home having a conversation with my wife, guess who is part of that conversation? When I'm at home thinking about things and mulling things over in my mind, guess who hears my thoughts and knows my mind? May I ask you, how does the Holy Spirit feel about what you do in your living room? I don't want to get too personal, but what is the Holy Spirit, how does the Holy Spirit feel when you open up your refrigerator? Ouch. <laughs> how does the Holy Spirit feel when you're interacting with others under your roof? God loves us so much that he sent his son to abide with us. And that ought to encourage us, but it also ought to challenge our lives. God loves us so much that he takes care of judgment. Jump down, if you will, to verse 17. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Confidence for the day of judgment. That means we have assurance. We have the understanding that even though there is a day of judgment that's, that's coming, we don't have to be afraid of it. I have a friend whose name is Troy Crane. Troy pastors in Alton, Illinois. And each week, Troy writes a blog. This, this last week, he wrote this. The word judgment carries grim, even sinister overtones. To be judged conveys the idea of someone looking down on another and uttering an authoritative opinion. <laughs> no one likes to be judged. Instead... We prefer the word justice. Justice communicates the quality of being just, impartial, or fair. Therefore, what we hear today is a cry for justice. And that usually means I want someone to rule in my favor. I want justice. But in the spiritual domain, all of humanity will stand before one who is absolutely just, who will render judgment based upon truth, righteousness, and perfect law. This one will not be swayed by our arguments or appeals, but his judgment will be fair, and he will judge using absolute justice. If you're looking at an eschatological chart, that's a chart of future events, you would see very quickly that there are three times of judgment. The first one that we see is the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema judgment. 
Second Corinthians chapter 5 says that all believers will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, that judgment will not be whether or not we receive Jesus Christ as personal Savior. Only children of God will be at that judgment. It takes place after the rapture of the church, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're caught up to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we ever be with the Lord. But it is a judgment of our works, whether they be gold, silver, precious stone, or wood, hay, or stubble. And that which is wool, hay, or stubble will be burned up and have absolutely no lasting value. It's a judgment where we can receive some crowns, crowns that are identified in, in Scripture. At the second coming of Christ, there will be the judgment of the living nations. Matthew chapter 24 tells us about the judgment of the living nations. Now, I simply want to remind you that the rapture and the second coming of Christ are two distinct events. The rapture, we meet the Lord in the air, so shall we ever be with the Lord. The second coming of Christ is when Christ comes back to earth to sit upon the throne of his father David and will rule and reign for a thousand years, the millennial period. At the end of that millennial reign, we have the judgment seat of the great white throne judgment. And that is the judgment found in Revelation chapter 20 where the books are opened and those not found written in the Lamb's book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. That's a judgment for small and great, rich and poor, all humanity. And it's a judgment that will take place where everyone who was not raptured stands before God. The reason the books are open and those not found written in the Lamb's Book of Life is because there will be those who come through the tribulation and who are in the millennial who have trusted Christ as personal Savior. And those not found written will find eternal condemnation in the form of a lake of fire. But I want you to know this morning that God demonstrated his love, that he gave confidence in judgment. Isn't it great to know that you're on your way to heaven? Isn't it great to know that we are going to be free from the condemnation that those who know not Christ are going to face? Isn't it great to know that this corruptible body will put on incorruption, this mortal body will put on immortality? Then we'll be brought to pass the saying that's written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your sin? Oh, oh, grave, where's your victory? The sting of death is sin, the strength of sin is But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And God sent his son. God gave us his spirit so that we would have confidence in the day of judgment. Judgment's coming, folks. But you and I, can have boldness, not fear. We can have confidence, not care. We can make sure that we have assurance, not anxiety. And that is a demonstration of God's love to us. I am so thankful that God gives us confidence even the day of judgment. And not only does he give us confidence in the day of judgment, 
verse 18 says, there's no fear in love. Because perfect love casts out fear. Why? Because fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. There have been times in my life that I have come home to Connie and needed to tell Connie something. I thought, I'm in trouble now. That ever happened to you? No, never. But you know, I wasn't afraid to tell her because I know she loved me. And I, and I know that no matter what I have to tell her, Connie, because she's way above my pay grade, is going to respond in love. Perfect love, God's love, casts out all fear. Hebrews chapter 13 says, He never leaves us nor forsakes us so that we can boldly say, The Lord is my helper. What shall I fear? Now, sometimes when we get startled, we fear. The other day, Connie was getting something out of the pantry. I assumed that she was getting it out of the pantry to fix me something to eat. She does that occasionally. Well, actually, she does it regularly. And she knew I was in the house. She knew I was the only person in the house. But I walked up to her because I had something to say to her, and I tapped her on the shoulder. I should not have done that. And she thought she was Fred Sanford. Oh, Louise, I'm coming home! Now, I asked her forgiveness, and she would feel much better if I would ask her forgiveness publicly this morning. So, honey, do you forgive me? Okay. But there are some things in life, right, that startle us, and just for a moment. But there are other things in life that we're afraid of. And usually... It's something that is unknown to us. It's something that we anticipate to be really, really bad, but it hadn't happened yet. And it's something that's in the future. May I remind you that that which is unknown to you is known to God? And whatever is unknown to you Whatever you fear, God is bigger than that. May I remind you that even though there could be bad, bad consequences and you're afraid of those things, may I remind you that God can work all things together for his glory and your good? And may I remind you that when unexpected issues confront us, God has a plan. And God will not be taken by surprise. You see, God 
shows his love. He demonstrates his love because his love, his perfect love, casts out fear, and there is absolutely nothing that will ever separate us from his love. Romans chapter 8. Not height, nor depth, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. Be encouraged today. God wants to show you his love. And he does that as he casts out the fear in our lives. Now that doesn't mean that we might get a little anxious every once in a while. But the scripture says, be anxious for nothing. You say, well, God, I'm not anxious for nothing. I'm anxious for something. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request talk to God about it. Okay, God, what am I going to do here? What do you want me to do here? And the peace of God, he casts out fear. We'll keep our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I am so thankful that God casts out fear. In fact, in Psalm 46, we read these words. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the mountains shake, though the earth trembles, though the seas roar, no matter what's going on in your environment, God's perfect love casts out fear. And God's got it. And you can trust him with it. Whatever that is. God demonstrates his love toward us in that he engages us in love. Verse 20, if anyone says, I love God. Now stop right there. John goes on to say, if anyone says you love God and you hate your brother, you're a liar because how can you love somebody you haven't seen God when you can't love somebody you have seen, your brother? But here's what I want you to know about that. God engages us in love in that he allows us to demonstrate his love to those around us. And that's a privilege. There is nothing better than to be loved and show love. There is nothing more satisfying in our lives than to recognize that we are loved and then demonstrate that to somebody else. You know that good feeling you get? You get it because you're able to minister to others. Scripture says it's more blessed to give than to receive, and that's absolutely true. And if you give God's love, you will recognize how much you are loved. And if you recognize how much you are loved, you will give God's love. And God allows us to engage in love. And what a privilege that is. Now, how does that affect our lives? What is our response? Our response is that we love our brothers. 
And our response is, verse 21, we live out his commandment. Because John says, whoever loves God must love. And God has allowed us to be authentic and relevant as we live out love. So, how do we walk in the love of the Father? We recognize the love of the Father in our lives. That he sent his son, that he abides with us, he takes care of judgment, he casts out fear, and he allows us to show that to those around us. Showing God's love is the best kept secret that this world needs to hear. So how do you complete this statement? God is. Aren't you thankful God's God? And aren't you thankful God is love? And John has told us in 1 John chapter 4, For we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God in him. So let's you and I, this week, live out the truth, walk in the truth, be authentic in the truth that God's love. Because we've experienced that truth in our lives. And we can show others the wonder of that truth from 